Hello and welcome to the Sex Within Marriage Podcast. My name is JD and I blog over at uncoveringintimacy.com. And today we're going to tackle some questions that I had way back in February and March. I realized that I completely forgot to post these questions, even though I had written them a while ago. I think it was a mix of, uh, in January we had so many questions I had to split it into three different posts. And then my sermon came after that, which took a lot of extra time. And yeah, so I, while I had written the responses, uh, I didn't get around to recording a podcast or posting them. So today we're going to tackle them. We're a few months late, but uh, we're addressing the questions. Uh, is doggy style demeaning? Does anal sex always cause bleeding? How to start talking about sex with a sensitive wife? Can you have sex with an unsafe spouse? How to handle a wife orgasming too quickly? Uh, mutual masturbation, swallowing your own semen. Can you be married to the wrong person? Is sexlessness being unfaithful and ethical porn? So if you have an interest in any of those, stay tuned. All right, so our first question is, is doggy style demeaning? So the full question that this person wrote in was, my wife and I have been married for nine years. My wife refuses to have sex in the doggy style position. I th- think the position is really sexy, and I would love to make it part of our lovemaking, but she's adamant about not wanting to do, not wanting to do anything with it. I have tried talking to her about it, and she still thinks that doggy style is inherently sexist and demeaning towards women, and she's told me that she does not want to be objectified like that. I'm not sure what I can do, but I would really like to change her mind. So I completely understand wanting to explore new things. Uh, it can get frustrating when the one person you can explore them with isn't interested in, interested in that exploration. So I'd probably suggest trying to find something that she's not quite so adamantly against. It's possible that when you explore some other things that aren't so far out of her comfort zone that she may open up to others. Uh, my wife has was dead set against some things that we do fairly regularly now, um, but it didn't start by me harping on those activities. Rather, it was me accepting it and letting it go and trying something else. And uh, it seemed to kind of lead back around um, to the things she didn't want to do. Uh, I find also that the activities that I bring up too often, um, you know, that she's not interested in, they just stay on the shelf. And if I was a wiser man, then I would just leave them there for the next decade before trying to dust them off again. So uh, something you can try is getting something like our exploration list, which might help you point out some activities that you both find mutually interesting. Because... While I think the Bible tells us that we should have sex with our spouse, it doesn't say that we have to do everything that they want to do. If she finds doggy style demeaning, it's demeaning for her. And to force her to do it or push her to do it, then you kind of frankly are demeaning her and you're objectifying um, the act over her and prioritizing that act over um, her desires. So in that sense, you, you are kind of objectifying her. So... I would say stick it on the shelf for a while, go explore some other things, and then dust it off in a while and then see if she's interested then. And if not, just stick it back on the shelf for a while again. Uh, truth is, she may never be okay with it, but that doesn't mean that you can't try other things. All right, next question is, does anal sex always cause bleeding? Someone recently told me that the reason anal sex is so risky for STD transmission is because the person receiving it usually bleeds, a little or a lot, 
and that it's uncommon for there not to be some blood slash injury to tissues. If this is true, and there is always almost always some injury during anal sex, then I don't understand how a Christian marriage educator, I guess that's me, could recommend it as an acceptable activity, even in the context of a Christian marriage. If injury often or usually results, anal sex then becomes akin to BDSM or, sorry, there's a new word for me, I hope I'm saying this right, coprophagia. And as far as I know, you believe those are unwise slash sinful activities. How can something that so often causes injury slash pain ever be considered uplifting? All right, so first off, this uh, is false. If it does cause bleeding, then something is wrong. Um, you're either not using enough lube, you're not relaxed enough, you're not going slow enough, or there's a pre-existing fissure, or you're not hydrated enough, or something else. Um, yeah, if if you're bleeding from anal sex, then you're doing it wrong. Uh, frankly, if you're bleeding from any kind of sex, you're probably doing it wrong. Um, yeah. So that sort of negates the rest of the question. However, I did want to address uh, one or two other things. Um, okay, three. The first is that new word, uh, coprophagia. Uh, for those that don't know, because I didn't know, that is the, uh, the consumption of feces. Yes, I'm definitely against that. No, I don't think these are related whatsoever. So, uh, the next one is there's a myth buried in here, and one is about STI slash STD transmission. Uh, we often get told through scare tactics that if you have some with, sex with someone who has an STI, then you will almost certainly get that disease slash infection. Um, that's not quite true. I learned uh, the week that I was researching this, that contracting, for example, HIV through anal sex, uh, if you are the receiver, you have only a 1.4% chance of getting HIV. That's without prevent- protection if they have HIV and you don't and you're receiving anal sex. So that's much lower than, for example, what I was taught in school. They never gave us numbers, but it, it, we were kind of told that, like, oh, if they have a disease, you will catch that disease. Um doesn't necessarily work like that. Uh, in fact, it definitely doesn't work like this 90% of the time. More, uh, 98.6% of the time, apparently, for this disease. Now, that doesn't mean that you should go out and start having sex with people with HIV. Uh, I just think that we should probably change how we teach kids about STDs and STIs and why they shouldn't engage in sex. Um, using scare tactics and don't do this or else is the wrong way to go about it. Um, we should know by now that doesn't work. On the flip side of this, um, condoms have about a 2% chance of resulting in pregnancy. So in short, you have a higher chance of getting pregnant using a condom than you do of getting HIV from someone who has HIV while receiving anal sex without a condom. And that's if you're using condoms correctly. Uh, I still have to write a post on that, uh, but one of my coaching clients was very surprised to find out just how easy it is to get pregnant if you're st- if you're using condoms, um, because most people don't know how to use them correctly. Um, so the number, like the percentage of people who get pregnant uh, while using condoms, is actually more like fifteen percent, um, just because they're not handling them properly, uh, or yeah, a host of things. Generally, just because they're not handling them properly. So, of course, I still advocate for waiting for marriage to have sex. Um, so that mis- mostly negates all these issues. Um, but yeah, let's just not use false numbers to scare people into not having sex. Uh, it doesn't work. 
the other thing I wanted to address is that uh, this person said I'm against BDSM, and I want to make a slight correction here. For those who don't know, BDSM is an overlapping acronym. Uh, it stands for Bondage and Discipline, D- Dominance and Submission, Sadism and Masochism. Um, I'm against that, that last part, the sadism and masochism part of BDSM, uh, in other words, sadomasochism. Um, e- but even that with some caveats. So I don't think inflicting pain for pain's sake during sex or using humiliation in any situation is good, but there are people who really like uh, spanking. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons. I have a post on that which I'll link to. But basically, there's a lot of uh, nerve endings there. Uh, it also um, increases blood flow to the genitals area. Uh, there's a whole kind of bunch of physiological reasons for why some people really like to be spanked during sex or as foreplay to sex. I'm also against the discipline part uh, when it's serious. Uh, I'm not really in favor of parents even using physical means to discipline their children. And yes, I have children. I have five of them. Uh, we have managed just fine without spanking any of them. Um, so I don't think you should spank children. And I don't think you should spank your spouse as a means of discipline. Uh, if you want to jokingly say, you know, oh, you naughty wife, you deserve a spanking, and then it's all fun and she actually wants it, then I don't see any issues there. But using it as a tool of um, discipline and uh, kind of humiliation, that I'm not okay with. And the rest of the overlapping acronym, I don't see issues with as long as they don't um, smack up against the other caveats that I've said. So uh, bondage can be an excellent tool, especially for wives who like to give up control. Uh, many of them don't like to be burdened with being responsible for sex. And so they actually like being tied up so that they can literally, they literally can't do anything except enjoy it. Uh, it also helps some people focus and be more mindful about sex and their mind doesn't wander as much because, well, there's bonds to struggle against and, uh, it just makes them more aware. So in that way, a lot of wives find that it's kind of like guilt-free sex and dominance and submission play can yield kind of the same results for the same reasons. So basically, uh, yeah, I disagreed with a lot of stuff in there, but I hope I answered the question. Next question is, how do you start talking about sex with a sensitive wife? This person wrote, my significant other has a very delicate sensibility when it comes to her sexuality. Part of it is due to a conservative upbringing, being homeschooled. She missed out on the middle school locker room conversations that desensitized me to some extent. We're trying to get better at having conversations about sex, what it means to us, what our expectations are, etc. It's revealing to me just how much she hasn't heard about and isn't interested in. While I'm interested in exploring and getting creative, I'm inexperienced having saved sex for my spouse. Is there a resource you can recommend that can ease us into those kinds of non-vanilla sex situations? Additionally, do you have any tips on how to approach these conversations with her? I want to lead us into them cautiously but clearly. So yes, I have a few resources. Uh, the first is uh, 37 questions for your spouses to ask each other about sex. It's free if you join the mailing list. It's also a dollar in our store. Um, but I don't know why you'd pay for it since you can get it for free. But some people do. Uh, it's a two-page PDF with a bunch of questions just to kind of help start these conversations. Uh, most of it tends to be pretty vanilla, so it's it's a good starter reference. If you want a more non-vanilla lead-in, um, you can check out our sex exploration list, which I've mentioned before. 
it's far more extensive and instead of questions, it's more like a checklist that for each of you for your preferences and boundaries. It's far more involved and can take a while to get through, but if you're looking for a way to figure out what you each are willing to try, then give that a shot. That will give you a lot of topics to discuss so you can know which to avoid completely if neither of them uh, interest you. Uh, though it might be a good idea to kind of share why they don't interest you. As well, uh, we also have some things like uh, are there printables like the Spice Star and Sexy Memory, which um, are a little less involved in this exploration list, but they also start to delve into some of these things, but in more of a playful manner. So that may or may not be good, depending on your wife. You'll have to take a look at them and make the best decision you can. Uh, as well, the sexploration list has like a whole introduction with tips on how to start these kind of conversations, uh, which you both should probably read before starting into it, because it sounds like um, you both have the potential to hurt each other during this discussion. Uh, you for pushing her in areas she might not be comfortable with, and her for kind of pushing back. Uh, there's a potential for you to feel like um, you're wrong or broken for wanting some of these things. All right, next question is, can you have sex with an unsaved spouse? This person writes, I'm a Christian, bracket child of God. My husband is an unsaved man. I want to know if it's okay or not okay to have sex or to not have sex. We're not on the same page for Christ. I go one way with Jesus, and he's on the sinner side of the world. Does it matter if one is a child of God or the other spouse isn't to still to have sex still? All I want to know, should I allow my unsafe husband to have sex with me or not? I want to do right and go by the Bible, bracket the word. Okay, so very first thing, uh, you say he's on the sinner side of the world. We are all on the sinner side of the world. Uh, I heard once, uh, the only difference between uh, someone who goes to church and someone who doesn't is the ones in church know that they're sinners. So I don't want you to see, like... (sighs) kind of that separation uh, looking down on him um, because he's a sinner because guess what? You are too. So am I. We all are. Um, the only difference is we understand how bad we are and we recognize that we need a savior. He's not there yet. That's not a reason to look down on him and call him a sinner. That's a reason to show him compassion and to reflect God's love to him uh, in the hopes that maybe one day uh, he'll figure out what you figured out. So, it doesn't matter. Yes, it definitely matters. Uh, I think this is why Christians are actively encouraged and slash commanded to marry believers. However, it doesn't always work out that way. I have many siblings who chose to disregard this advice, unfortunately. It's a difficult path to walk. Some of them have left the church. Some have become kind of lukewarm Christians, and one ended in divorce. Um, also, sometimes two peri- people marry as non-Christians, and one converts while the other doesn't. Sometimes they marry as Christians, and one leaves the faith. So whatever the situation, uh, I think the biblical response is the same. And it's in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16. And Paul writes, uh, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, she is, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who does not believe, and he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let them depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. 
For how do you know, O wife, whether or not you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So basically, you committed to marrying them, and uh, now it is your job to show Christ to them in your marriage. Uh, and since you're married, then 1 Corinthians 7 verses 3 to 5 comes into play, you know, which is the let the husband render to his wife with the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise the husband does not have over authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he's probably never going to consent to uh, not have sex so that he can do prayer and fasting, or at least not until he becomes a believer. And even then, some people choose not to do that. Um, but basically, marriage includes sex. Uh, in fact, I'd argue that if you are married and you are withholding sex from him, uh, whether he's a believer or not, then you are the one acting like an unbeliever and teaching him that believers are hypocrites, are sex-negative, and unloving, which is exactly the opposite kind of things that you should be teaching him about God. So I'd say, yes, go have sex with your unbelieving spouse. You know, have really good, caring, loving, exciting, adventurous sex between just the two of you, as God intended. Uh, maybe by your loving sexual relationship, you can show them that God, who created sex, is a really amazing being and worthy of our worship. In fact, uh, say a prayer of thanks out loud after sex, thanking God for creating sex and orgasms. You know, uh, Human minds are incredibly susceptible to suggestion after sex, and he will feel a lot of bonding chemicals and hormones with you. So your influence will be even stronger, uh, and we accept ideas from people with whom we know, love, and trust. So it's a great time to introduce some sex-positive theology into the relationship simply by being open and honest in praising God for sex. Um, who knows what might sink in. All right, question number five is... Uh, a lot of times we talk about women not having an orgasm quickly, but never address women having them too quickly. Can you touch on how women cannot orgasm too quickly or what they should do about it if they do? Thank you. All right. That's true. Uh, we t- often talk about things like premature ejaculation, uh, but usually people don't complain about women having an orgasm too fast, although it does happen. So uh, I came up with a few things that you can do, actually with the help of our support group, because uh there was a bunch of people answered this question. So tip number one is try a second round. So uh, first off, for many women who are orgasming too quickly, it isn't a big problem because they can have multiple orgasms. Unlike men, um, their orgasms don't release prolactin, or at least they don't release as much prolactin. I'm not quite sure on that. But prolactin is what causes a refractory period in men and what causes uh, erections to be unattainable uh, after they've had an orgasm, or specifically an ejaculation, not an orgasm. So, but women don't have that. So typically you don't have a refractory period, so there's no reason you can't have another orgasm. So for some women, they're too sensitive right after an orgasm, so continuing afterwards is uncomfortable. However, for a lot of them, you can just wait a few minutes, and then the sensitivity calms down, and then you can start again. Um, Many aren't ever willing to give it that chance, and so they don't realize that they're multi-orgasmic. As far as I can tell, everything I've seen is that all women can be multi-orgasmic physiologically. It's just their psychology that sometimes gets in the way. 
However, I'm not sure about that, but uh, it's something worth trying. Tip number two is you can practice edging. So uh, edging is basically bringing them close to orgasm, then backing off, letting them cool down a bit, and then starting back up again until you get close, and then you repeat as often, as well, as many times as you need. Um, so it has the benefit of slowing down the orgasm because, well, you just have to take a break every once in a while. It can be really frustrating the first few times, but it'll also help um, train her to kind of hold back her orgasm if that's what she wants. Um, it also has the effect of building up to a much larger orgasm because um, that arousal builds more, so there's more tension in the body to release, which is what that orgasm is, releasing that tension. Now, this takes paying a lot of attention to your body uh, on the wife's side and on the wife's side and on the husband's side, it takes paying a lot of attention to his wife's body and communicating well. Uh, it can be a fun game to try to get as close as possible without pushing over. Uh, number three is to kind of change things up a bit. Uh, you can try slowing things down uh, just by shaking them up. So one idea I've heard is to set a timer for, say, 20 minutes. Uh, depending on the variation, during those 20 minutes, you aren't allowed to touch genitals or you aren't allowed to do anything that includes penetration. The rules are up to you. The point is to force yourselves to try other foreplay activities beyond what no- you normally do. Because sometimes couples get stuck in a pattern of doing the same activities uh, in the same sequence every time they have sex because it's efficient. Uh, we know that if we do A, B, and then C, then orgasms will be had by all in 20 minutes. But uh, if you know that uh, if you start with A and go to B and then she has an orgasm right away, don't go from A to B, you know, inject number like D in there first. Uh, figure out something else that you can do that maybe just throws her off a bit um, so that she doesn't have an orgasm as quickly. And one of the reasons I create resources like our spice jar is to shake up those routines. So try switching things up a bit, see if that helps. Sometimes new and exciting things actually speed things up. Um, but if they're far enough outside of your comfort zone, they can also slow things down quite a bit too, because uh, your brain kind of goes into overdrive thinking, you know, what's happening? This is different. I don't know what to do. Uh, that might be beneficial in your situation. Lastly, uh, there are some desensitizing gels um, that can help reduce the sensation. I'm a bit hesitant about these because I'm generally not a few, huge fan of using medications when you don't need to, but they do exist. I don't have any experience with them myself, so I can't uh, personally suggest any that I've tried, uh, and I don't know which ones are kind of considered body safe. So do your research and uh, act in accordance with your risk tolerance. That said, I just had someone reach out to me last week from a company that makes one of these. And they I've heard from quite a few people, actually, that they're um, the best that they've tried. Uh, it's called Promescence, I believe. I'm going to see if I can get a link to it. But those are some ideas. All right, question number six on mutual masturbation. Is it wrong to mutually masturbate with myself since she has a vaginal deformity? We are okay with watching porn together as it satisfies both of us. Is this a sin? So this one surprised me the first time because my response completely changed between sentence one and sentence two. So I'm going to treat this like two questions. First question, is it wrong to mutually masturbate with my spouse since she has a vaginal deformity? Uh, definitely not wrong as far as I can tell. It's still a shared experience and thus intimacy building in my books. I have a post uh, delving more into the topic, which I'll link to in the show notes, and a survey on the topic. Um, 
I'm kind of curious about the deformity of if something can be done about that. Um, but to answer the question, I don't see anything wrong with that. Second question, we are okay watching porn together as it satisfies both of us. Is this a sin? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I know some of my readers are going to disagree with me on this because there's been, uh, last month there was a flurry of comments trying to convince me that porn is okay according to the Bible. Uh, I'm not seeing it. Um, for one, you're allowing someone else to arouse you, uh, not only allowing it, but seeking that. That's not intimacy building it, uh, with your spouse in my books. Um, that's directing attention outside of your marriage. As well, there are numerous studies on how porn adversely affects your brain. Uh, I'm not going to go through the entire argument again about porn, but if you like, uh, I have posts on the topic, at least three of them, uh, I'll link to in the show notes. Uh, and it's come up time and time and again on the blog. So uh, I would say please stop doing that for your own good. All right, next question uh, is, my wife doesn't like to swallow after giving me oral sex. Sometimes, however, she tries to spit my semen into my mouth. Is it wrong if I swallow it and enjoy it? Um, this question or one similar to it has actually been asked a couple times before. Um, and I have a post that should answer the question. The short answer is, I don't see anything wrong with it. It's just bodily fluids. It was already inside of you. Um, so it's probably not going to hurt you to go back inside again. That would probably kind of grow some people out, and it doesn't quite work for all of your fluids. Um, there are some things that definitely shouldn't go in your bloodstream that come out of you. Um, but um, I don't think semen is going to hurt you going into your stomach. All right, next question is, uh, I don't know where to turn to with this question. I think I married the wrong person, and I feel guilt over this. When I met my wife, I felt confused. She was pushing for a relationship, and because we are very physical from the beginning, I guess loneliness, I agreed. And I guess loneliness, I agreed. I tried to break it off, but I felt bad every time I tried, so we always got back together. Then one day, she pushed for marriage. I tried to say no, but then complied. I was and am a very weak-willed man. It's been five years, and the truth is that I love her. The romantic feelings that should have been there from the beginning are there, but there is something, but there is still something bothering me. I feel guilty for marrying her. Her dis- dedication to Christ wasn't as mine, as strong as mine, I'm guessing, and it often feels as that I am being dragged away from ministry because of her. It's not why, it's not why she wants it, but it feels like that. Not quite sure what that meant. And I constantly feel guilty as if God is telling me you made the wrong choice. Some people warned me about getting married to her, but I didn't want to listen. I didn't feel peace either, but I was stupid and did it anyways. But we have a good marriage in my opinion. The problem is that I feel like I will reach, I, I feel like I will reach my God-given destiny with her. I think he means I will not reach my God-given destiny with her. But what do I do now? Do I feel guilty for the rest of my life? I constantly feel guilty for marrying her. I don't know what to do. Will God remind me to the end that I made the wrong choice? I love her and treat her as a queen, but the guilt eats me up. Do I just get used to the guilt? So, the members on our supporters forum were unanimous. They all said in one way or another, once you're married, it's the right person. Uh, it doesn't really matter what the reasons were. I, I agree with them. There is no biblical basis for the idea that God has one person for you or that you can 
marry the wrong person kind of thing. You know, soulmates don't exist. We do have verses that say, you know, be careful who you marry um, because there's a lot of things that can go wrong. But once you're married, that kind of all those kind of go out the window. Instead, we have verses like 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 14, which I already quoted above, so I'm not going to post it again or uh, reiterate it. But it's basically the, you know, once you're married, whether they're a believer or not, it doesn't matter, you're in it for life. As well, the Bible describes two sorts of guilt feelings. One is from God and one is from Satan. Uh, we find this in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So what you're describing sounds more like worldly sorrow from Satan. It's drawing you away from your wife and God. And so that can't be from God. It might have originally been to make you recognize your weakness and repent, but either you haven't repented and you're hardening your heart, or you have, but you haven't accepted forgiveness. Uh, either way, stop focusing on what you did in the past. You know, uh, Repent, accept forgiveness, and then do what God calls you to do, which is to love your wife. That is your first ministry. If you can't manage to love your wife in your marriage, then you frankly have no business doing God's work outside of it. And if you feel guilty for loving your wife in your marriage, then something's not right there. Uh, in fact, it's so important that church leaders uh, were forbidden from taking office in the New Testament until their house was in order. So if you continue to just wallow in the past and let the past mistakes continue to drag your life down, uh, or you can step up and be a man and lead your family the way God wants you to. It's up to you. No one else is going to do it for you. And if you give up and leave, uh, you, you won't right or wrong. You'll just be com- compounding it. So in short, I, I don't think God is trying to remind you or keep at you saying that you married the wrong person. Uh, I think God is hoping that you'll turn around and actually engage in your marriage. And if you want your wife's uh, relationship with God to be stronger, then then lead her in that. Start doing Bible studies with her. Um, you know, do devotions together. Um, but don't make her constantly feel like you married the wrong person. That is about the most wrong way to teach her about the love of God that you could possibly come up with. So, next question is, is sexlessness being unfaithful? This reader asks, if my spouse will only have sex with me three or four times a year, is this being unfaithful even though I try to be romantic and make life enjoyable as possible? So here's the struggle that we had with this question in our forum. Unfaithfulness is not necessarily about behaviors, but about mindset. For example, having sex with someone other than your spouse is clearly adultery, right? But what if they were raped? Did they still commit adultery? It's still sex, but most people would say no. No. Uh, what if they were sleepwalking? Some people have sex in their sleep. It happens. Would that be adultery? Uh, you know, what if they were both asleep? You know, questions like that can get confusing, and you have to kind of figure out where's the line. And with this question, I think we're missing a lot of context that we can't figure out what's going on. We don't know the why. We don't know what the mindset is. You know, is she suffering from a health or a mental condition? Is she simply avoiding sex? Or is she unable to bring herself to have sex? Is the husband abusive or has he damaged the relationship in such a way that making herself vulnerable like that would be damaging to her? Um, we simply don't know. But if we make a few assumptions, uh, 
then we can give a more generic response. So uh, if any of these assumptions are wrong, then we kind of have to throw out all the subsequent thoughts. So let's assume that, number one, their marriage is relatively stable and there are no major emotional or trust issues. Uh, number two, there's no abuse happening. Number three, there's no serious mental or physical illness. And number four, there isn't some recent trauma like a, a death of a loved one or something equally traumatic. That's just throwing them off for a short time. So there may be some other exceptions, but I, I'm hoping you kind of see the point and uh, the gist of these assumptions. So in short, it, it, with all else being relatively healthy and okay and stable, um, then I'd say yes, uh, a failing to have sex is being unfaithful. It's on, is it on the same adult level as adultery? Some would say yes, some will say no. Uh, I'd argue sin is sin and levels are irrelevant in most situations. Um, but the real question is, why are you asking? So if you're asking me to give you permission to divorce, I won't. Um, sexless marriages can change. Furthermore, I'd argue if you leave, then you've broken your vows because marriage is a covenant. Exchanging vows when you get uh, married isn't creating a contract. You aren't saying, I will do X if you do Y and vice versa. It's promising to continue to love regardless of what the other person does. In sickness and health, rich or poor, and sexlessness is either sickness or being poor, depending on how you look at it. Now, it may be that your spouse isn't keeping their vows, and that's on them. If they were asking the question, then I'd give a very different response. But they aren't. You are. So my response is that regardless of whether or not they're keeping their vows, your vows are made to your wife and to God and can't be broken lightly. So, yeah, doing so is an admission that you have failed to love your spouse and failed to forgive. And that becomes scary with these verses like Matthew 6, verse 15, that says, you know, if you don't forgive men their trespasses, then neither will God forgive you. Um, I'm not saying that if you get divorced, you won't go to heaven, but I think the Bible is clear that if you struggle to forgive and struggle to love, then you're going to struggle to accept that same forgiveness and love from God. And that may lead to your refusal of salvation, ultimately. Uh, and It's a dangerous position to be in. So, what can you do? I find in most situations like this, the spouses aren't talking about it. Um, talking, so start discussing this lack of sex. Uh, if they won't talk about it, then book an appointment with a pastor to get some spiritual support and a ther therapist to get some psychological support. I invite your spouse to come with it, but don't force them, as if you could anyways. As well, start making it clear um, to others that your marriage is in crisis. Uh, when they ask how things are going, you know, ask them to pray for you both. Uh, you don't need to give details at first, but if your spouse continues to refuse to address the issue, then I'd start opening up more. Um, why? Because it's not to shame your spouse into changing, because that would be unwise and usually doesn't work. Rather, it accomplishes two things. Um, the first is you get the support you need um, to continue to love your wife. And the second is that the sin is brought into light. And it, it's very easy to sin when nobody knows that you're sinning. It's a lot harder when it's public. So eventually someone will pull your wife aside, hopefully, and say, you you know this is wrong, right? And hopefully she won't have hardened her heart so much that she won't listen, but she'll actually be receptive to it. 
And I see this as being in keeping with Matthew 18 and its conflict resolution plan. Now, that said, I've rarely seen anyone follow through with a biblical model of conflict resolution and never with regards to marriage. Um, we prefer just to suffer and give up, at which point we've really failed in our responsibilities as believers to hold each other accountable, uh, including our spouses. You know, we have this verse in Galatians 6 verse 1 that says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I think if we continue to let our spouses um, be unfaithful or to sin without addressing it, then we become an accomplice in that sin. And if you divorce her, then you've abandoned her to continue this um to hold this sinful mindset and heart and potentially condemn another man to suffer as you have suffered. But if you address it, there's a chance that she will change. You may get what marriage is intended to be, and you might ultimately save her. In James 5, verses 19 to 20, the Bible says, My brothers, if anyone amongst you... uh, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multiple multitude of sins. And ultimately, all it will cost you is some temporal suffering. So, yeah. Is it unfaithfulness? Yes, with a lot of caveats. So treat your wife like the sinner we all are. Um, show her compassion. Um, show her love and um, hold her accountable to um, what she says she believes in. All right, last question is about ethical porn. Is it wrong for a married couple to watch what is now being described as ethical porn to increase sexual knowledge and intimacy? So the first question those in our forum asked was, what is ethical porn? And here's my response. Uh, It depends on the audience. For most of secular society, um, I found this description from ASB.ABC.net, which is, Ethical porn can be defined as that which is made legally, respects the rights of performers, has good working conditions, shows both fantasy and real-world sex, and celebrates sexual diversity, just to name a few. It is an accepted belief that abuse against women is a major problem in the porn industry. And... For some Christians, uh, ethical porn is any any porn that shows real married couples having sex. Um, For me, there's no such thing as ethical porn. Uh, It doesn't exist. It's an oxymoron. Um, With the possible exception of you making porn of yourself or only you to watch, and then you have to worry about storage. So, as stated from my perspective, yeah, I think it's wrong. There's no ethical porn, just as there aren't any Christian erotica sites or Christian swingers or Christian evolutionists. Uh, At least, in my opinion, there shouldn't be. They're all oxymorons because they're all designed to undermine something about God, his creation, or his laws. And I understand the rationalization. Uh, I've made it myself in the past many years ago Uh, we tell ourselves that we're only doing it to make our marriage better to learn to please our spouse better to learn things we can't otherwise learn because we only have sex within marriage you know we rationalize that there's no difference between um, learning it through porn or learning it through a blog or a podcast like this and some will even argue that it's better 
But there's a big difference between clinical words on a page intended to be informative and a video depicting two people having sex or even a story about two people having sex. Uh, I think one is the intent of the creator. You know, not the creator as in big C creator, God, but in the author slash director of whatever you're reading or writing. You know, intent and mindset, I think, are important. Now, in this blog, I deliberately do my best to frankly, avoid arousing you. I tried to be way more informative than erotic. But I don't think that's quite enough because I'm sure someone out there has made some educational videos, including naked people having sex. And uh, I feel like there was a Monty Python sketch about uh, a teacher showing his class how to have sex or something like that, which, if it was real, would still be highly inappropriate. But I don't think body parts in textbooks and such are indecent. So it's hard to nail down a hard and fast rule about what is wrong. Uh, but in the words of uh, Justice Potter Stewart in the Supreme Court in the U.S. Uh, discussing pornography, you know, he, he said simply, I know it when I see it. And uh, personally, I do my best not to see any of it. So that is it for the questions from February and March. If you have a question from your own, you can submit it on our Have a Question page. Link is in the show notes as always. Or you can email me directly at j at uncoveringintimacy.com. You can check out our blog, again, at uncoveringintimacy.com. I'd love to have some reviews. I don't get many because I know it sucks. Uh, there's a whole bunch of people downloading and listening to this. We get almost, I think, 2,000 listens of the podcast a week. Way more views on the blog than that. So I know you guys are listening, but not many people are willing to tell anybody that they like it. So if you're feeling brave, please rate and review us. It'd be great. That way we can help more people get the help that they need from a Christian source. Other than that, if you want to help support us, check out our donate page at uncoveringintimacy.com slash donate. It gives you access to our supporters forums, which is always lots of fun. We have a lot of good discussions there, and it's a blast. That's it for now, and hopefully I'll have May's questions and answers up soon. See ya.